to Women Making Moves, where we celebrate the moves that women are making. My name is Amy Pons. I'm a master certified life coach and an energy worker. I'm joined today with Dr. Nikki Lanier. <laughs> when asked why she has focused so much of her professional life on advancing racial equity, Nikki Lanier will tell you it was an assignment passed to her in utero. Born to parents who were immersed in the civil rights movement, Nikki was raised on the campus of Hampton University, one of the country's most prominent HBCUs, and as a child was taught to see the advancement of Black people as a birthright and an imperative to a civilized society. She was raised in a loving home that nurtured her curiosity around these principles, but also assured her confidence in articulating the same. Now, as CEO and founder, Harper Slade, one of the fastest growing and most highly recognized racial equity advisory firms in the country. Her work focuses on helping organizations cultivate environments where black and brown talent can thrive. Nikki has also founded two global coaching programs, one for inclined white women who want to become better racial equity advocates in their home, workplace, and community. And the other, a coaching program is for professional black women who are in need of ripening and respite. Dr. Nikki Lanier, welcome. Thank you, Amy. I am so honored to be here. So excited to have this chat with you and your listeners. I am too. And I'm so happy to hear about that coaching program. I was just raising my hand voraciously uh, at Dr. Nikki while I was reading her bio. That's gorgeous. What are the two programs called? The program for white women is called the Rare Woman Collective. And RARE is an acronym. It stands for Radical Action Advancing Racial Equity. So there's the two A's. And Amy, that is a is a suite of experiences designed by me and the Black women on my team to help white women who are interested in, curious about, want to know more around how to advance racial equity in every space they hold, recognizing that racial equity is not intuitive work, that it is an uphill battle, that it is countercultural, that it is oftentimes it can leave you feeling fairly depleted and isolated. But I am absolutely convinced that white women, given the power and positioning and proximity to white men, are really the best positioned, if desirous, to really help us move the needle in significant ways on race and racism. And then my second coaching program is called the Slade Woman, S-L-A-Y-E-D, and it is for Black women who are looking for professional amplification, looking for coaching, looking for development and, and want to grow their careers, but not always quite sure what to do with the feedback that we often receive in corporate spaces that often feels laced with a bunch of microaggressions and not quite sure what the motivation is. So sometimes we need the exhale at the same time that we are looking to build our own professional and kind of global acumen. So that's a program specifically for, for Black women. Mm. You mentioned the exhale, and I think yeah. about Lisa Hurley's The Great Exhale. Yeah, I have. Yes, 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 yes. Shout out to her in The Great Exhale. So thank you so much. Tell me a little bit more about your work, if you wouldn't mind, beyond the coaching programs, but also the moves that you're excited to be making right now and heading into 24. Yeah, 2024. So crazy. So I am I am a fairly new entrepreneur, Amy. I've just started my company not two years ago. So it is called Harper Slade. We are a racial equity advisory firm where we help organizations cultivate environments where black and brown talent can thrive, recognizing that most work environments are just inhospitable to the way that difference shows up in general and certainly the way that black and brownness shows up in the workplace 
feels as though, you know, the contributions and the the presence of, of black and brown folks in workplaces is kind of thwarted from the beginning. Most employers don't recognize that because they're so well-intended, most of them, and just have not ever really been trained to ask questions around black and brown navigation. And so now given the demography, like the demographic trends, we know that America is becoming blacker and browner. So that means we got to do more. We got to be more and we got to pay attention to the community that we've only known how to marginalize. So that's what I'm doing. I don't know. What am I most excited about? So 2024 is a year of uh, deepening. I, I, I think that's probably the best way for us to think about the work on the Harper Slade side. We are finding that while our volume is down, we don't have the number of clients that we've had in the last year and a half, but we do have clients who are really desirous of understanding the community that they've never really had to understand before because these very forward-thinking employers understand that the pool from which they will be sourcing candidates and customers henceforth is blacker and browner. And there is a desire to be more dexterous with the nuances and idiosyncrasies of the community. So we're excited to work with, you know, the select employers that we get a chance to commune with next year. Many of those we're already starting to onboard and looking for a couple more slots for our 2024 roster. I'm also really excited to continue the work of the Rare Woman Collective. We had our launch event November 2nd through 4th in Louisville, a big live event, three-day conference where white women from all over the country came to Louisville to spend this time with me and my team. We went through 13 learning models all designed toward helping us understand the attributes of being a rare woman, how we have to think about the inward work before the through us work, the importance of defining racism and racial equity uniformly and, and submitting ourselves to a movement, like becoming underneath the authority, if you will, and the frameworks and the tenets of a international movement designed to create a world where racism can't live. So we are starting with rare on the road in 2024. So we're hitting six cities. Those will soon be announced. <laughs> really, ex- yeah, we, I know we need to do a Midwest one, but we're hitting six cities in 2024 where we're doing a three hour workshop. It's like a breakfast workshop deal, uh, inviting women from those regions to come and join us to be a part of the movement and to begin their learning journey with me and my team. So we'll announce those dates and start selling tickets to those breakfast workshops here shortly. And then we also have what's called the Rare Remix, which is those people that missed the Rare Woman Collective Live. We have taken certain of those modules from the live event. We're digitizing them and we're putting them on like a little website. They can download it like a course that's called the Rare Remix. There's subscription plans that are going to be coming out. So I'm on this platform now called Swell, but I'm so excited. I love it already. So I'll be a Swell caster. So uh, every Thursday and Friday, I'm doing morning, Thursday morning and Friday morning sessions on just work, navigation, and career. Talking about stories with my my trajectory from my days of practicing law and human resources and Federal Reserve stuff. So anyway, lots to be excited about in 2024. We're very, very happy about all of all the work ahead. I'm serious. Will you write my name down that I want to be anywhere you are? <laughs> I'm excited about that. Thank you. And you mentioned that employers are well-intentioned. I'll give you an example of what I felt as as a woman in general in the workplace. And I want to think that this was this was one of the examples, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. So yeah. I was leading the women's employee resource group. We still had those 25 cent crank pad and tampon machines in the bathrooms. Mm-hmm. And when we raised that as wanting to be kind of an initiative for the new year of making those all free. The senior leadership one men did not realize we even needed those or had those. 
in the mm-hmm. restrooms. Mm-hmm. And then also the, the women in leadership, they had their own restrooms and they had like a basket of them not realizing. And I want to think that it was well-intentioned, but it became more of a debate about, well, what if someone takes them all? I was like, but then great, we've made their day. Like, is that really something to debate? But I'm envisioning when this company got started, you know, 30 some years ago, and no one that looked like me was sitting around the table planning and they're like, oh, I guess we'll do this, put these machines in here. And it was so wild to me, but it's yep. just, they were like, we didn't, we didn't even think about it. I was like, exactly. And I wasn't saying that as a jab. It was like, why would you think about it? But be open and have that conversation. Is that a poor example? No, indulge me with this analogy for a moment. So we talk a lot about gardening references with my work. So I want you to think about that example in the context of being a marigold. So if your entire life, you grew up as a marigold, you were, your parents, of course, are marigolds, as were their parents, everyone in your neighborhood, also marigolds, you went to school with marigolds, boy and Girl Scout troop meetings, marigolds, you went vacation with marigolds. When you went out to dinner, you saw and engaged with marigolds for the most part. And this is because of your parents' choice of navigation, not necessarily choices you were making independently. And then as you grow up, you're finding yourself now in middle school and high school, largely dominated by marigolds. A few examples of other flowers here and there, but by and large, the marigold way ruled the day. So you're now in a, you're come out of high school, go to college, and you have a little bit more exposure, but your marigold cementing has never been disrupted. So what you know is the marigold way, what marigolds eat, how much sunlight they need, how much water, all the things. So now you're spat out into this new work environment, this work environment, and you are a CEO (laughs) of an organization, and you're called to lead and manage tulips, daisies, roses, petunias. So your instincts will tell you is that to manage those tulips, daisies, roses, and petunias, much like a marigold. And they're getting the same kind of watering, same positioning in the garden, the same kind of sunlight, the same kind of fertilization and aeration. And when they start to wilt, because they will, when they start to wilt or even die, the marigold will believe that something is wrong with those tulips, daisies, roses, petunias, right? They'll get a mentor (laughs) or they'll be put on a performance review plan Because the narrative of what you understand as a marigold, your whole life has been around the marigold orientation. While you might have heard about or experienced episodically these other flowers, they came with a narrative. Your standard was the standard barrier. Their mattering had to measure up against your standard. And that has always been the case, right? So when I talk about well-intended, or probably, you know, good intended. It's not that they're not ignorant and that there aren't gaps clearly in in how they understand others' experiences. It's that the orientation around the life experience has never asked them to assess any way other than their own. And so now for the first time really ever, I would say the first time really ever in work environments, we've got all these marigolds that are being not only chastised, and corrected because they don't know tulips, daisies, roses, but they're also being made to feel bad for being marigolds. Mm-hmm. So it's through that lens that they have to now, fit. and again, this is not an excuse. I'm not feeling sorry for the marigolds, right? But I am trying to understand the psychology of it because to me, it's always about outcome and changing hearts and minds, giving people an opportunity to reset and rethink their frame versus shaming them or bemoaning, berating for doing and being something that generations have said is fine for centuries. 
they don't feel safe. Not all. Mm -hmm. When we approach any human being, every human being, every soul wants to feel seen and heard. This is my belief. And so when the marigolds themselves are not seen and heard further being berated for being a marigold, as you said, we're, we're shifting the unsafe to them. And then they're going to react with that power or with that, maybe not power, but with what they've always had, the resources that they have, which is then turned into, to your point, the poor performance. And it goes in other directions where as a coach, I would love everyone to have a safe space to share their unique brilliance, to see the the real hearts of everyone so that we don't just keep reacting on top of each other. And so then it's this mess of unsafe. We call it in the rare woman collective work, we call that harm swapping, especially in a culture that values clapping back, getting cussed out. Mm -hmm. I'm a do me. We're just so inartful and reckless and careless. And we place high value in that for some reason with each other in general. But because I'm I'm not interested in the clapping back and the going off and the trying to put you in your place, I'm interested in your heart changing. Mm. That is my only goal. And I mean, I may or may not be able to get you there, but because of that, that informs the tactics mm. and the approaches and the disposition and the nature and the language that I even use. How beautiful. You're interested in the heart changing. I have to tell you, I really, really try to lead with my heart when there is someone in front of me saying harmful things. Mm -hmm. Do I get it right all the time? I do not. I really try hard. Sometimes my sacred rage will come out and I will, I'll do a clap back, but most times I'll try to say, help me understand. Tell me more. Like, what was your upbringing? Like, what were your, what was your family like? And I try to, I try to get there. Some are interested, some are not, but I, I just. Right. That's right. And sometimes it is about stopping, like you, I shouldn't say there's no instances where that the clapback is not necessary because sometimes it's about stopping the harm, not swapping it, but just stopping it because I can intercede. You may be in a better position to intercede on someone else's behalf, but because I'm just like so worried about what is going to happen to us as a country when we finally are the majority, black and brown people are the majority, if we're not able to correct the way that racism and marginalization shows up. I can't think of any scenario other than an apartheid inevitability. And so that's what I keep top of mind as I'm engaging around issues and instances around race and racism and racial equity. I'm so glad you exist. <laughs> oh, God, thank you. <laughs> On that note, we're going to talk about something that gets us both kind of spicy. <clears throat> so yeah. you, you made a post three days ago on LinkedIn, and it's in reference to Killers of the Flower Moon. We'll never understand the centuries-long compulsion to destroy, murder, steal, lie, strategize to conquer communities and cultures who are otherwise thriving. It's Mm -hmm. sinister. Yeah. Where were you emotionally, mentally in this post? Tell me more if you'd like. I think, Amy, in general, because my, my whole life has been imbued with the struggle of a people trying to claw a recognition of humanity from other people. And I saw that with my parents. I saw that with my grandmothers. I saw that in my own life. And it's quite frankly what I do for a living now. And so on some level, I don't find the work depleting because I love being able to be useful in the space. But my downtime, I'm learning, can't be also in that space. (laughs) Psychologically, I just, I can't handle it. So uh, I just, I can't watch suffering intentional manipulative suffering on the screen in the name of entertainment, even though the film was amazing. Like it's so beautifully well done. Martin Scorsese, I think was the director. It was Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, it was beautifully, 
the the work the craftsmanship was absolutely superior and i love the honoring of the native american community i think it was the osage community i, I like all of that but this idea this evergreen notion of typically white males observing white men observing darker cultured people in their own nuance and culture and ritual and custom and thriving and seeing that as de facto a threat to white preservation, white existence, so much so that the threat, the time frame between I am assessing you as a threat to I am now conquering and dominating and eviscerating seems to be a fairly short one. But even in that short time, there's lots of planning and strategizing and manipulating. And so I just, that theme is not lost to me. I mean, we've seen that on so many occasions and not just even with black or brown per se, we saw Hitler did the same thing. And that was the, you know, obviously the basis of the slave trade. It's the basis of, you know, what we see by way of suffering internationally with so many, so many communities indigenous. We just had some conversations with the folks in Australia about, you know, having their uh, native people recognized in their constitution. And so it's just the, the, the right, the privilege of being in a position of assessing someone else's global mattering, communal mattering, human-based mattering, making a decision around how you choose to value it and then acting accordingly without ostensibly any accountability. That I just, that's what I was reacting to when I decided I, I, I couldn't take another minute. And I left, I left the movie early. And why can't we just look over and say, that's awesome. Meaning like what they're doing in ritual and things like that. Like, why can't we just be in awe and then be like, all right. You know what I think it is? I think it's, it's, it's something about the, the win, win, lose anchoring. So in order for someone to win, that means someone must lose. We, we like both. And we like sharing uh, successes conceptually, but I think we don't have a muscle. We white males, typically leaders um, who have led us in the past and, in, in these kinds of situations just don't seem to have the exercised muscle to to figure out what a both and looks like because we're so focused on somebody has to win that means someone else that loses you know i never thought about psychologically in terms of the work that we both do and any of us out here working toward anything that we're doing but the psychological divide between like the 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 day, the work day, and then how we spend our free time. That's a really great point that I'm going to take back because I love lessons in chemistry that I brought up to you, but it's also, it was so triggering to me. We had to pause it a lot for yeah. me to freak out, cry, go yeah. in the other room, get some cake. I don't, whatever. It was just very, it was just a lot. And there's this, this part of me that like, I want to know what really happened and whatever that looks like. I want to know what really happened. Absolutely. But not through someone's lens to your point that not only wasn't there, but also is not going to tell it or I don't know. How does that play into your thought about that too? Because I I do want to know what actually happened. And history has been skewed by what we were taught. Mm -hmm. How how do we marry the truth without entertaining, entertaining, I guess? Yeah. I think it, it's a, a lot of it depends on like discernment. I mean, that's where I just, I spent a lot of time really asking spiritually for discernment and wisdom so that I can, as best I can, evaluate what I'm taking in. I, in my work with Harper Slade, when we try to help our, our clients understand racial inequity, 
and therefore the case for economically rooted racial equity, we put them through immersions and like an experience, we call it the experience experiment. Our participants kind of navigate what it's like to, what black life was like post-World War II up until like the 80s. And so just things like trying to buy a home, trying to go to the doctor, trying to get your kids into school, trying to try on clothes at the store, trying to buy a supplemental property, trying to get a loan to help fix your property up. So just those kinds of things, understanding the rules, the policies, the customs and the norms that prevented any economic empowerment, that shut down choices that were available to Black people, my parents and their parents. And then that helps you kind of reset. So I think that's more of an objective way, although I do love the arts. I mean, I think that there's something about artistically sitting in the seat of consumer of art, where we're sitting down expecting to be altered, expecting to be changed and challenged when we're consuming art in a way that maybe not so much when I'm at work. I'm not looking for anybody to ask me about what my grandma said about Black people at work. Sorry, that's not what I'm here for, right? But, but I but I might be willing to have that conversation in an artistic kind of environment because of what I'm consuming through through artistry. So there could be something there I think that might be helpful with with the way arts play out. It's just for me, it's just harder for me to absorb it in that way, just given what I do for a living. Thank you for sharing that. So the next question is kind of odd and I want to ask it in a different way. It was, how would you help? Do you talk to people that understand Inequity, the way you speak about how you're concerned about how someone's heart will change, whether they get it or don't get it, what does your conversation look like or does it even happen with someone who doesn't understand or want equity or inequity and are they different? Are they similar? How do you approach that? So let me just start by saying, and this is this will sound more arrogant than it than I probably need to, but I recognize there's some arrogance in it. I think that there are few people who understand what equity is in general, that there is more, most of us blur the line between that and equality. And it is DEI, racial equity, corporately is the area where globally we are our least sophisticated. So I'm saying that to say how I am invoked oftentimes is in a very sort of immature way. (laughs) Sounds terrible. Meaning... I assumed as much. That's why I was like, this question's kind of weird. I was like sensing from you how you were approached. So your approach kind of immature. Do you mind saying what that is more? Yeah. Hey, we need a training or, you know, we need to get, we need to get a couple of our employees trained on something. Can you, can you come in and just do a, a talk about microaggression? So I'm almost always invoked with a finite task. And because I recognize that most employers don't recognize what DEI must upend and the discipline and the rigor and like the embedding and the culture and blah, 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 all those things. I almost always come back to them with a more, much more comprehensive plan. So that's, that's one thing I'll say. But to answer your question more specifically, usually by the time that we're signing contract or at the point where, where we're being engaged my definition of racial equity has already been well socialized. I would have either talked about in the context of a speaking engagement or a podcast. Or so that's usually how my work is coming to me also. So people have heard me talk about that. It's all over our website. Like I'm very clear about racial equity, how it's defined, what it means, and what it must correct for everywhere. 
And so if you haven't heard me say it before we start talking, then certainly by the time that we're moving through the tenants of the engagement, moving through the proposal, you would have heard it by then. So there really aren't any any surprises around at least what we're marching toward. But again, you know, it just it's most folks don't realize that, you know, they think of DEI as any other kind of initiative. This is my air quotes. Your folks can't see me doing my fingers like this, but any kind of initiative or finite undertaking, but we just don't we don't treat it in that way if we, if we can help it. Right. Because you mentioned immersion. It's not a, it's not a box check. It's not an initiative. It's, it's, it's a, a set of experiences really. Yeah. It just happened to happen at work. Dr. Nikki, where do we find you? Oh, thank you for asking that. I'm everywhere, girl. Let's see. Okay. So LinkedIn, I'm incessant on LinkedIn. So that's probably the best LinkedIn and TikTok. Right. So I do a, quite a bit on TikTok, especially for my my white women operatives who are looking to be the racial equity advocates that I know that you all can be and should be. So TikTok is where I hang out big time on that. And then LinkedIn, we're on a little bit on Instagram and Facebook. I have a website, several websites. The first is uh, harperslade.com. The second is rarewomancollectivelive.com. I have nikkilanier.com. And I'm most recently on Swell swell platform it's an audio storytelling platform so i'm would love your folks to subscribe to to my swell channel and we'll do some swell cast talking about career and such so those are all the places you could find me perfect we'll put those in show notes thank you closing remarks as we wind down well amy i just appreciate you're giving me the opportunity to to share my musings with your wonderful audience and with you your questions have been beautifully provocative and the conversation has been so incredibly enjoyable i hope to have conveyed how passionate i am around this work and how grace filled i am around this work and what distinguishes i think my voice my impact my intent with Harper Slade and you know we really are looking to partner with organizations and to be a solution provider and an advisor not a gotcha organization or you know we're coming to yell at you and make you feel bad for anything it's just recognizing the humanity in all of us and that we've got to we we have our our generation drew the short straw on this we we have to be the ones that fix this finally for once and for all so thank you for helping me spread the word on that thank you Dr. Nikki my pleasure <laughs>